Swagmen and Swagettes, welcome back to the show. At the beginning of last episode with Tyler Cowan, I asked for your vote in the Australian Podcast Awards. Well, at number 19, the Jolly Swagman podcast scraped into the top 20 podcasts in Australia as rated by listeners. Thank you so much for supporting the show. It seems that enough people share our peculiar combination of interests. In a spirit of mutual support, I'm going to use this spot not for ads, but for a couple of personal shout-outs. The first is to the boys at the satirical newspaper, The Batuta Advocate. These boys allow me to use their studio, which is where I record most of the podcasts, including this intro, free of charge. It has been a game-changer for audio quality, so thank you so much to The Batuta Advocate. The second shout-out is to a listener of the podcast who eventually became an in-kind supporter. Over the past couple of years, beekeeper Harps from Muscle Honey has been sending me Jolly Swagman branded jars of honey as gifts to give to guests of the podcast. And in February of this year, he sent about 50 jars of this God-given nectar down to Melbourne, which I gave out to audience members at our live podcast event with Peter Singer. Without waxing lyrical, let me just say that it was really sweet and created a buzz. Muscle Honey produced pure, raw, ethical honey from bees around New South Wales. So to support them and support Harps, please go to musclehoney.com.au and buy a subscription box containing two jars of the best honey you'll ever taste for just $25. It makes a great Christmas gift. So go to musclehoney.com.au. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Swagman and Swagettes. Whichever side of the aisle you call home, what a gut-wrenching few weeks it's been for our American brothers and sisters. While Trump's presidency may be coming to a close, Trumpism needs to be reckoned with. And who better to help us understand it than our guest for this episode, Ali Hochschild. Ali is the preeminent sociologist of her generation and is widely regarded as one of the most influential sociologists of the 20th and 21st centuries. I was first introduced to Ali's work through former guest of the show, David Tuckett, who has drawn on her notion of the deep story. That is, a feels-as-if story, stripped of all facts and told in the language of symbols that helps us to make sense of the world and our place in it. We all have our deep stories, but in this episode, Ali helps me understand the deep story on the American right. Now Professor Emerita of Sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, Ali founded the field of emotional sociology, and her work focuses on the powerful role that emotion plays in social and political life. In 2011, alarmed by America's growing polarization, Ali decided that she needed to break out of her liberal elite bubble in Berkeley and find an equal and opposite bubble. She travelled to Louisiana in the Deep South, where she spent the next five years meeting, befriending, and ultimately coming to understand Tea Party supporters. These experiences and interviews became the basis of her book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, which was published just before the 2016 election. Strangers was a finalist for the National Book Award and is a must-read. Many on the right say that you need to read J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy to understand the rise of Trump. I humbly submit that you should read both Vance and Hochschild. 
This conversation was recorded on Sunday, the 22nd of November. I really enjoyed it. I could have spoken with Ali for hours. We discuss her journey to the Deep South, what she learned, and how to make sense of America's alarming divisions. I've given this episode a rather clunky title, Despair and Indignation in the American White Working Class. But it's a deliberate rephrasing of the subtitle of Ali's book, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. For reasons I hope you'll come to understand in the episode, I think it represents both a more factually and emotionally accurate summary of the crisis that led to Trump. A crisis that the left can no longer afford to ignore. Without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the great Ali Hochschild. Ali Hochschild, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Delighted to be here. Ali, I really admire you, and I think your insights are so important in this current moment. So I've been looking forward to this conversation, and I'd like to begin by talking about you. Ali, your father was a foreign service officer, which meant you spent much of your early years living around the world. Can you tell me about that experience and any particular memories that jut out? Yes. Um, you know, I think... Uh, I remember at age 12 being plonked out of what seemed to me at the time a, a normal uh, girlhood in suburbs of Washington, D.C. And uh, we were assigned to uh, Tel Aviv, Israel, and it was the middle of the calm scene. It's very, very hot. And um, I... Uh, didn't speak the language. I didn't know anyone. Um, my parents put me in a Scottish uh, Presbyterian uh, boarding school, which was the only school in the country that spoke English. Uh, uh, and my classmates came from every country in the world. Um, I stood out as having funny Oxford shoes and, uh, you know, American dress. I was a head taller than everybody. Um, the uh, uh, It was a very long school day, an hour and a half playground, Hebrew on the playground. I was so unhappy, so displaced, just like a plant pulled up. And um, I, I just felt odd uh, and... Uh, friendless and I remember coming back to my mother and say and she said well how was school today dear in this uh, chipper voice and I was just wordless just weeping uh, you know oh it was awful very strict kind of Scottish teachers oh forbidding and she then said well dear I'm really sorry um, but if it doesn't work out after three weeks, we'll send you back to grandma and grandpa. And then I thought, oh, God, I've got to adjust to this thing. And it was both the most painful and the best thing that ever happened. I think it's very important for me to have been the oddball, to have not fit in. And two years later, when we went back to the U.S., I didn't fit in there either. You know, I, I wasn't American anymore. And, and when we all went off, so it was the experience of developing a third eye, that um, the eye of the stranger. And when you kind of 
uh, relax into it, it's the best thing in the world because then you're looking at the world through an almost, uh, with a detached ego. Like you're not on the line, you're just watching from, from the top of the wall and it's really interesting what's going on down there in life. So when I meet other sociologists or other writers, I see the same things happen to them in different ways. This was just my way that it happened to me. In your first year at graduate school in sociology at UC Berkeley, you picked up a copy of C. Wright Mills's 1937 collection of essays, Power, Politics and People. How did you find this book and how did it influence you? I found it at a bookstore and um, I took it home and just read the first few pages and I thought, he's speaking in plain English, he's speaking with quiet political passion. This guy cares about the world. He isn't just studying it. He isn't stuck at the top of the wall, just detached and watching. He wants to make it a better world. And uh, I just loved it. I just thought, oh, let me read everything he's written and see who else he has read and been influenced by it back up to see if if they influence me in the same way. Uh, he was uh, engaged so that the things he wanted, trained his curiosity on mattered, you know? And I thought, okay, this is, this is the kind of person I'd like to grow up to be. I didn't find that in the sociology department at UC Berkeley at the time. I, there were very many other expectations, and certainly for a woman at that time. So, But I stuck with him, and also with Irving Goffman, uh, who also influenced me a great, great deal. Simply the... Um, for him, it wasn't, he, he was also engaged in a critique of the society that he observed, but it wasn't a political critique, it was a cultural critique. He looked at all the indignities that go on, for example, at a mental hospital, or for people who have some kind of stigma. Um, uh, and... I, I loved his identification with the underdog and how much he could see that uh, was hurtful that went on, kind of a micro-political lens on the world. So guard, I just felt um, invited into a way of using my curiosity for a larger moral purpose from those two. You're so curious and so observant. You seem cut out to be a sociologist. Was it an easy career decision for you? <laughs> oh, very easy. Uh, you know, our son once said, Mom, I can't think of anything else that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fits you that well or that you would do. Uh, you know, um, uh, so, but I do remember being... You know, I remember graduating from college. I went to Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. It's a Quaker school, very 
um, academic, you know, rigorous, but there was a kind of a a spirit of, uh, well, it's not enough to be smart. You really should figure out why you're doing what you're doing and see if you can leave the world a better place than you found it. And I'm not a Quaker myself, but I that spirit rubbed off very much. And uh, so, so yes, this I, when I graduated, I felt, well, maybe I could be a social welfare worker. Maybe I could work in the Peace Corps, uh, but maybe sociology. <laughs> so it kind of got <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, I love yeah. art, too. Yeah. When I was 16, I thought I would go into agriculture. So I don't know. <laughs> I, I bounced oh, around a little more than it than shows. <laughs> yeah. So Strangers in Their Own Land, when did you decide you needed to write this book? Take me back to that moment and what your thought process was. Well, I was sitting in um, my office on the fourth floor of Barrows Hall in Berkeley, California, where I had long taught sociology. And um, it was 2011, and I was reading the paper and reading uh, article after article about the rise of the Tea Party, which at the time was a very uh, powerful and um, rapidly growing movement in the United States that basically turned its fire on the federal government itself. There should be um, a giant cut down of the federal government. It had too many welfare programs and uh, let's get rid of social security. Let's get uh, rid of food stamps. Let's get rid of um, uh, Head Start programs in, in, in schools one thing after another, and I was just appalled. I thought, oh my goodness, so many books I've written in the last chapter call for the government to um, bring around uh, child care, state-of-the-art child care, or um, uh, parental leave, neither of which we, we have in this country at the federal level to this day. But I thought, okay, now that most parents... Uh, most children uh, grow up in homes where all the adults work. So if that's true, let's get really serious about freeing some more t- worker time to be home with, with kids for a period of time, or uh, let's get fantastic child care. I was really focused on that issue, but saw the government as playing um, one important role and being a solution. I'd written a number of books, The Second Shift, The Time Bind, Global Woman, all of which ended with a call for government activism. And so here was a movement trying to shoot all that down, where the government wasn't a solution, it was a problem. And I thought, man, I'm going to go through this life and and uh, disappear from it without any solution to, that I'd been calling for. What is this movement? What, who are they? How how could this make sense to them? How different are they from me? So, because I was used to living in foreign lands, I thought, well, um, where are they? Well, they 
I, you know, I was born in the North, and the, the Tea Party was uh, strongest in the South. Uh, and I thought, okay, South. Where in the South? Well, how about the Super South? And uh, that would be either Louisiana or uh, Mississippi. And I chose Louisiana because I knew one person. So I, that was what got me going. And then I, then I made the leap to um, go to where the Tea Party was the strongest. And one survey actually found that half of Louisiana citizens agreed with the tenets of the Tea Party. So I thought, okay, I'm in the right place. Let me uh, wow. <laughs> settle it and see what I can find out. And why is the Tea Party strongest in the South? Like, what? Why do whites in the Dixie states tend to be freedom-loving government minimalists? Well, that um, is a question that, before it got clearer, got more and more confusing for me because I came to realize that that was part of a red state paradox. That is across the whole country. Why is it that it's the poorest states, the states with uh, the most disrupted families, highest divorce rate, most single moms, uh, the lowest uh, achievement scores from school, worst health, worst health care, lowest life expectancy, most pollution, all those problems, those states are also the states that receive more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in tax dollars and revile the federal government. That is the red state paradox. If you've got these problems, wouldn't you welcome help with them? You know? And Louisiana turned out to be an exaggerated version of this red state paradox. It was the second poorest state in the whole country. Uh, 40% of the state budget came from the federal government, and they had all those troubling rates. A, a highest pollution uh, among the highest in the country, and a, a life expectancy um, that's five years uh, shorter uh, than that in Connecticut, for example. So uh, that the question just got deeper b before I could could make my way to an answer, and then I got my way to the answer by asking people. And who were the people I asked? Well, I joined um, uh, the Republican women of Southwest Louisiana. I asked if I could come, and to everyone I just said, look, I'm the oddball, I'm, I've come from out of state, uh, I'm not a member of the Tea Party, uh, I come from a very progressive town and, and state, Berkeley, California, um, but I'm really worried about the divide in the country, at which point they would shake their heads, yeah, they were worried too. And I'd like to come to know you. And they would say, yes, well, people like you don't understand us. You look down on us. You think we're ignorant and racist and, um, uh, and rednecks. So I said, well, help set the record straight. Uh, that's why I'm here. I want to really 
get it from your point of view. So they were very helpful and took me around. And um, uh, I would ask, where were you born? Could I see the hospital? Where did you go to school? Could I see, you know, what, what row you were in? Can we go to church together? Where are your kin buried? And then they would say, well, come on fishing with me. Come meet my brother-in-law. You know, so, so it went for five years. And always this question was in the back of my mind. And I would ask them, how come you're so down on the government? And when it looks to me like you would want some help from the government. And uh, they they took that red state paradox and they kind of said, well, yeah. They threw it away. They said, well, we're embarrassed. It was even a joke. Oh, well, bottom again in education. You know, the, the Cajuns, as a group of uh, originally French Catholic many of whom settled in Louisiana, and they very conservative. And they would, they had a self-deprecating sense of humor. Oh, there we are, bottom again, you know, second to the bottom. And uh, as if it were, if they could joke about it, they, it would be less painful. Anyway, um, they kind of threw that away and said, that's not really... Uh, what's going on for us. We don't want more government help with our problems. Um, we, we're we here in the South and we don't like the finger wagging North, which they saw the government as, you know, telling us once again how wrong we are. And uh, so there was some, you know, hesitance, prejudice, bad experience uh, that they associated with the federal government as Southerners. But I don't think that was it. And certainly Donald Trump is, you know, a Northerner. Uh, and they were later, everyone I interviewed, to embrace Donald Trump. So there was the prejudice against the North, and then there was um, a sense that states and governments uh, don't do what we pay them to do. There was a great deal of cynicism about that. And I came to understand why in Louisiana, it's an oil state, it's a bought state. In fact, the big CEOs of the petrochemical industries do buy or are themselves the legislators in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They and they um, very much shape the government. So, for example, the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality that's supposed to keep the citizens safe from uh, dioxin and other contaminants in public waters don't keep the citizens safe. As one person said, oh, they give out permits to pollute like candy. So people felt cynical and thought of the federal government as just a bigger, badder version of state government. So they had a real point there, I felt. <laughs> I, I could get yeah. that. I really could get that. But then beyond yeah. that, 
um, there was a third and final peel the onion kind of explanation for the red state paradox. I felt that um, that you'd have to put uh, in in the form of a deep story. Now, what's a deep? I'm going to stop you there, Ali. Yeah. I, I want to come to uh, come to this notion of a deep story, but I just wanted to take a, a step back and and kind of pick apart a few aspects of your your journey into the deep south first. So so that five years you spent there from 2011 to 2016, I assume that wasn't a continuous five years, and you were still based in Berkeley, but making periodic trips down to the south. Mm-hmm. About twenty. 20 trips. And some of them, I took a, a nephew with me. I took my son with me twice, took my husband. So uh, these were actually family journeys. And after the book came out, I went back, gave the book out, put on dinner for the people that had helped me and some I dedicated the book to. And then they started to visit me <laughs> in Berkeley, so we got a little, <laughs> a little corridor going. That's it's, nice. It's going still, yeah. yeah. And to prepare for your journey, very interestingly to me at least, you reread Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Why was that? Well, I didn't know who I was going to find and what was meaningful for them. Let me just say that that my method was to take off my own moral and political alarm system and to try and really climb into the sensibility of of people that I knew I would uh, differ from. And I I I had I knew I would differ from Ayn Rand, that uh, this was uh, the kind of a self that seemed to elbow others aside and uh, um, uh, give such primacy to, to one's own will. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't relate to that, so I thought, well, let me try and relate to that. I mean, who, uh, let, let's, let's give it a go, you know? Um, so it was a way of kind of preparing myself to unwrap myself from the speeches I gave myself about um, more help for childcare, for uh, parental leave, all the policies I'd been pushing, and kind of say, okay, what if I thought we all are on our own? You know, you've just got to do it yourself. The worst thing is to be uh, lazy and um, un, unaggressive, unassertive, that uh, Jesus was a wimp. You know, how would it, what kind of a, mm. what, what kind, how would it feel what, to feel that uh, so afraid of what one took to be weakness? That's, I've just tried to melt into that so that I could um, not miss what I was hearing. Hmm. The other puzzling thing about the Tea Party's embrace of Ayn Rand is that it doesn't seem to square with the Tea Party's predominant Christianity. Um, obviously, Rand was an atheist, and and the book is about sort of rugged individualism, and is often sort of caricatured as as being that way. Can I suggest a 
a resolution to this paradox. So my uh, friend or pen pal, David Sloan Wilson, who's an evolutionary biologist, was analyzing fundamentalist religious texts a number of years ago. And he was trying to categorize different words that referred to either altruism or selfishness. And he divided the words up along two dimensions. One dimension was whether something was harmful or beneficial to others. And the other dimension was whether something was harmful or beneficial to oneself. So then there were four different categories. Something could be win-win in which it benefits you and others. Something could be lose-lose in which it is detrimental to you and others. Something could be win-lose in which it benefits you at the expense of others. And something could be lose-win um, in which you sacrifice something for the benefit of others. And curiously, what he found was that most of the language or almost all of the language in these fundamentalist religious texts relating to selfishness and altruism fell into either the win-win category or the lose-lose category. And then he was analyzing Ayn Rand and found the same thing. So all of the language about morality in Ayn Rand's texts is either win-win or lose-lose. And I think, in fact, um, in her other, um, her, you know, her philosophical contribution, The Virtue of Selfishness, Rand herself states explicitly that there are no conflicts of interest among rational men. But why this was so interesting was that what they had in common was this obliviousness to trade-offs and everything could be distilled into these acts which were either great for everyone or wrong for everyone. So life was about this linear sort of march towards glory and away from ruin. Um, I'm not sure if that resolves the paradox, but it's certainly uh, worth considering. I found that very interesting. It is very interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, the surprise was when I put down my Ayn Rand and got on the airplane and got to know people uh, <laughs> in southern Louisiana, they were anything but selfish. They were uh, enormously kind and mm. uh did things that were not in their own self-interest uh, on a routine basis. These were stayers, people uh, who lived uh, now as adults not far from where they had been born and where they would die. They were not leavers, they were stayers. And they, uh, most of them were... Um, uh, churchgoers, and they had strong community, and they did for community. I would uh, go and visit a, a fr one friend, for example, uh, and uh, I heard a rattle in the back of the car. She picked me up, and the back uh, of her car said, oh, those are some uh, pecans that I've uh, picked uh, for a friend who's uh, laid up and not uh, able to. So I'm going to bring them to her. And then we stopped and she said, oh, in the back of the car, um, here are some styrofoam uh, plates and cups. Oh, I'm doing a fundraiser for our boys 
in Afghanistan. You know, these are 17-year-old American soldiers, never been away from home, and I have some one-touch pillows that we're sending to Afghanistan. What are they? Well, when the boy lays his head on the pillow, he knows God is protecting him. So this doesn't fit Ayn Rand that as I understood her, you know, Ms. Selfish, me, me, me. No, these people were very generous. And I once had a conversation. Oh, this is another part of my method is to sort of ask them to help me think out the question. So I'm not just asking them what's true for them. I'm asking them, well, help me understand, you know, this. And at one point, I said to this very woman, look, I think you empathize with other people as much as I do. You know, I think you're a kind person, but I think we have different empathy maps. That is, I think you empathize with people who are of the same group and the same religion and the same locale. Uh, and you're very kind to them. Uh, same racial group. But I think, you know, my kindness, no more than yours, is more spread out. It's more uh, according to need, as I see it. And um, I don't have to know the person that I'm trying to help. And she said, oh, no, that's not true. Um, she was a member of the Pentecostal church, and she took me to her church and looked right there on the cork board, look at all the little African children in their Sunday best, their Pentecostals are right there in Nigeria. And I said to her, right, but aren't they on the cork board there in your church there in Lake Charles, Louisiana, because you want them to be Pentecostals like you? And she said, well, you got me there. <laughs> She's wonderful. I just love talking with her. Um, yeah. So anyway, it all, the question sprawls out from your, uh, your philosopher friends, uh, four box plus plus minus minus. It, it's, I, th I, I think I, I can come to grips with it better by thinking about what the rules one's ideology uh, put forward that lead you to empathize and care about another person. Um, and these were very caring people, but they were following very different empathy rules. So let's come to the notion of a deep story. What is a deep story? Well, it is the feeling that you have about a salient situation that you're, that's really up front and central. And you take facts out of the deep story. You take moral precepts out of the deep story. It's just the distillation of feeling you have about a salient situation that can be told as in a dream uh, through a metaphor. And the metaphor for, I, I should say, we all have deep stories. No one of us doesn't. But the right-wing deep story, as uh, 
I came to think of it, is that you're waiting in line, uh, a long line that hasn't moved in decades, and your, your feet are forward. It's like a pilgrimage. The top of the, of the mountain is the, is the American dream. And you're facing it, you feel you've worked hard, you're played by the rules, you don't begrudge anyone, you just want uh, to move forward to uh, uh, that prize. And then in another moment of the right wing deep stories, you see line cutters, people cutting ahead of you uh, unfairly, as you understand, through affirmative action, that would be African-Americans, who finally were being given access to jobs that had always been reserved for whites and women who had uh, were finally given access to jobs that had always been reserved for men. And then there are public sector workers working to uh, uh, save animals, so environmentalists. Uh, and people would say to me, oh, these environmentalists, they worship animals <laughs> more than people. They thought of them as literally animists, uh, also cutting a head in line. Another moment of the right wing deep story, uh, there is a, a, a leader, President Barack Obama, who seems to be waving to the line cutters. Oh, he's a line cutter too. You know, he's... A, a, it was the idea, and people would then say, how did Barack Obama's mother, she was a single mom, how, how could she afford uh, a very expensive education at Columbia or Harvard? Something rigged, something fishy, line cutting. And then in another moment of the right wing deep story, there's someone ahead of you in line who comes from a coastal city is highly educated and they turn around and they look at you and they say, you ill-educated, um, stupid, uh, backward, uh, prejudiced, homophobic, sexist, fat, Louisianan, you know, you redneck. And then that's the, the snap, the, the, the insult of that, the sting. Know, the liberal elite kind of um, disparaging you, the hard-working pipe fitter in a petrochemical con company, uh, that makes the line waiter feel uh, like a stranger in his own land and unrepresented by the government. And then um, in the last moment of the right-wing deep story, uh, Donald Trump comes along and says, so you're a stranger in your own land, but come with me. Uh, I, will, I will give you your land back and uh, get rid of the line cutters, get rid of environmentalism, get rid of equity goals, uh, and uh, bring you back to the 1950s so you can be safe as white middle-class men. And so um, I think I then took this deep story and went back to the people I'd come to know and said, look, I've got this story. What do you think? May I just tell you what? And some people said, oh, I live your story. 
Like I said, oh, that, that's your narrative. It, it describes life every day. And some said, no, you got it wrong. You forgot that the people who are waiting in line are paying taxes for the people that are cutting in line, especially uh, the immigrants and undocumented workers and refugees. We're paying for them. Um, and uh, then some people said, yes, actually, only I end your story differently. We just secede. You know, we get our own government. Again, this is the South. So um, that uh, that's the deep story and uh, that is theirs. And since the election, there have been new chapters to that story added. But in essence, I think that was the cultural picture underlying the red state paradox. And it, it's uh, underneath it, if we back up, I came to realize that the people I had come to know over those five years were what I would call the elite of the left behind. They were not the abject poor. And they were those who found themselves in a declining sector. Globalization had created winners and losers. This was the losing sector, but they had done actually pretty well within that losing sector. That's who they were. And they were looking um, anxiously at a story of what they felt to be demographic loss, cultural loss, economic loss, religious loss. Uh, they felt smaller and dwarfed in every one of those ways. And so they were eager for, for someone who promised to lead them to the promised land. That would be Donald Trump. Wow. In talking about about the deep story on the right, I think it's careful not to suggest that it's all somehow kind of fictional or not valid. And I'm by no means suggesting that that's what you think, Ali. But I, I do want to just for a moment kind of pause and take stock of the situation among the white American working class and, and take their concerns very seriously. Because from my perspective as, as sort of a foreigner, looking in and, and reading some of the literature, it seems not so much that these people have been waiting on the outskirts of hope for the American dream as much as they've just been languishing in purgatory. And you're, I'm sure, familiar with the great work done by the Princeton economists, the Nobel laureate Angus Deaton and his wife Anne Case, who've discovered the, the, yeah, the, the deaths of despair. So... Um, at this point now, 150,000 people um, in the white uh, working class, people without college degrees, are dying deaths of despair every year. And deaths of despair refers to suicide, uh, drug overdose, and then uh, diseases related to the overconsumption of alcohol. So, you know, deaths of a spiritual crisis. And... Somewhere around the year 2000, uh, Americans between the ages of 
white Americans between 45 and 54, their average life expectancy was no longer increasing. In fact, it was actually declining. And that's a pattern seen almost nowhere else uh, on the earth. Um, To now, at this point, conditional on education, white misery is greater than black misery, which is consistent with a lot of uh, Robert Putnam's work as well, that education has become a bigger variable than race. Um, And so you have these deaths of despair, you have mortality rates increasing, you have the fact that for unskilled and manufacturing workers, real wages have been stagnating and declining since the 1970s. And, And that causes, you know, the problem with that, it's not, it's not, so much, or not only money, but it's the dignity and the structure and the culture and ritual that comes with holding a job. And, and you know, as well, particularly for men, if you don't have a job, you're not good marriage material. If you don't have a stable and consistent family, that's also a huge loss of dignity. Um, and that that is sort of what generates these deaths of despair, um, which echoes... Uh, as you know, Ali, Emile Durkheim's account of suicide, which is that suicide happens when a society fails, provides some of its members with a framework within which they can live dignified and meaningful lives. Um, and so we have this this real crisis um, among the white working class. And then the liberal elite who really broke their end of the deal when they, you know, argued for globalization, um, turn around and look at these people and point their fingers and say, you racist, you sexist, you homophobe. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's just like, no, fuck you. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. And Donald Trump, yeah. he, was, he was a wrecking ball, but he was their wrecking ball. Yes, that's right. This was a mutiny by people who'd been abandoned. Yes. I think uh, what you say uh, is... Um, is really uh, on on the money, and that from the 19 early 70s on, uh, the blue collar class has uh, been on the skids, and uh, that uh, these diseases of despair are kind of the 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 human uh, uh, cost. Of, of that. I've done a book review in the New York Times book review of that book, very positive. I think it's a, a fantastic book. Um, so here's the thing. There are real problems. The Democratic Party um, did not address uh, the problems of the losers of globalization from the 70s on, and that's on the, the Dems now. Um, at the same time, uh, one is wrong to blame blacks for this, or women. I mean, the mm. uh, actually, the proportion of uh, blacks in uh, colleges, um, in, in the top, let's say, 500 colleges, has not increased in the last 30 years. And actually, family wealth has declined because uh, blacks put their money into housing. In 2008, the housing market crashed, and that hit blacks a lot harder than it hit whites. So wrong to look, to to blame uh, this on blacks, right to look at offshoring and automation. And... um, 
and right to, yeah. to, to look at the new education divide. But here's, here's the paradox. If you look at what Donald Trump has done in three and a half years, has he helped the blue-collar man uh, who is in the crisis you've just described? No, he has not. Has coal mm. come back? No. Has large-scale industry come back? No. Has diversification of new um, new kinds of uh, things? No more than under Obama. And with education, is he helping blue-collar men get those BAs? Not at all. He cut the Department of Education by 10%. He's abolished Pew grants to students that are specifically designed for blue-collar uh, students. So he's actually building a wall where it shouldn't be between uh, trapped blue-collar men and the solutions they so much uh, seek. Uh, so it's a giant paradox that while culturally he's captured their story, uh, economically he's uh, making it worse. Their, their water isn't any cleaner, uh, their schools aren't any better, and uh, jobs aren't, aren't any closer. Uh, what they do have is somebody to blame, immigrants, blacks, uh, and, uh, and women. Mm. I think it's unethical at the level of the individual to blame immigrants, blacks, and women. But if I was putting on my policymaker hat, I would be a bit realistic about it and just say, well, this kind of zero-sum and negative-sum thinking, while it's wrong, it emerges in a context of stagnation where the overall pie is no longer growing for a certain portion of society and so people are starting to fight over the scraps. And so I would focus much more on how do we increase real wages for this portion of society. Right. I think that's, uh, that's right. Um, but I would do it uh, in two kinds of ways. One, I would alter uh, gender culture and, and realize that a lot of the declining jobs are, have been guy jobs in uh, blue-collar jobs, dangerous jobs, you know, in steel, heavy industry, the kinds of jobs you find in Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, that uh, now have gone to Chinese blue-collar workers or Mexican blue-collar workers or to uh, robots. Okay, so mm -hmm. that leaves what, what jobs are growing tend to be women's jobs, quote, around women's. So maybe we need to alter the conception of um, being a librarian, being a, a medical, uh, be, being a nurse, being, being a medical administrator. And actually just yesterday, I was looking at the statistics of the proportion of men in getting degrees in those three things, library science, medical administration, nursing, Actually, shockingly, in the United States from 1990s to today, proportion of men getting those degrees has gone down, hasn't even just stayed steady. 
So what's going on with that? Why isn't that opening up? Are women not letting them in? Is it uh, that mm. uh, has it gotten defined as you know uh, a woman's thing when it, it, we know perfectly well that jobs get feminized and masculinized all the time. Meanwhile, women are making a beeline for men's jobs, which of course earn more, but uh, the proportion of women doctors has gone from 5% to 51% since 1990. Uh, yeah. Same with law. So I think we have to look at that and uh, open out a lot of jobs. For example, I'm doing field work now in Appalachia, where which is the heartland of this uh, diseases of despair you mentioned. And a lot of guys are working in uh, alcohol recovery programs. Uh, extraordinary work that they are doing that is hugely satisfying to them. And they're doing brilliantly. So uh, there are jobs that we need to open out, not just look at the old economy, Donald Trump is having us look backwards. We need to look forward to the new kinds of jobs that are needed and um, for which there's there's training. I had a very sad story that one man told me. He had, he came from a very blue-collar background. He's um, from eastern Kentucky. He's a recovering alcoholic, now got his BA, but he tells the story of his first year trying uh, uh, to get uh, a degree. And his mother and father had told him, you know, stop talking. At the, don't talk at the dinner table in the car. Don't talk in the car. He wasn't used to uh, expressing himself. Brilliant guy. <laughs> Every Sunday I'm now, I Zoom with him. We're just, and he uh, is, but he got to this junior college, he went and sat in this chemistry class, there were no advisors, he didn't expect there to be advisors and there were none, there were no sections where he could talk to a teaching assistant, the professor had no office hours, he flunked out in the first semester and took it as a personal uh, uh, flaw on his part, oh, I was too stupid. No, it was the it was the school that flunked. Why wasn't there, uh, you know, someone to greet him, someone to sort of show him the ropes and invite him on in, um, tell him on the, all the different occupations there are. So I think uh, if Donald Trump is closing the door to education, we need to open that door, open it wide, open it with emotional brilliance and uh, invitation um, so that they can climb that wall into the kinds of jobs and dignity uh, they need and deserve. As you were putting the finishing touches on strangers, Donald Trump was striding onto the stage and I'd like to, to spend a little bit of time talking about Trump. So um, with apologies to anyone in the audience who, who's a Trump supporter, I considered Trump a man who was uniquely and comprehensively unfit for the office of the President of the United States of America. But against that context, there was a way in which he was a more effective orator than Barack Obama 
if you define oratory more broadly than just the use of sort of fancy soaring rhetoric. And I think he was more effective in in three three ways. The first was he was a master at seeding memes and frames and narratives, like the kind of epithets that he would apply to people very devastatingly, Pocahontas, Crazy Bernie, Low Energy Jeb, Crooked Hillary, um, you know, the fake news, um, and then just kind of repeat them until they sunk into the public consciousness. These were all very devastating critiques. Um, Secondly, I think he was very good at drawing the crowd's attention to itself. So at rallies, he would always say, you know, look how big this crowd is today, folks, which sort of shows he understands the power of social proof. But finally, and most importantly, he he really connects with certain segments of America at an emotional level. And almost every rally of his I've watched, at some point, he does his own sort of two minutes of hate, where he points to the fake news media at the back and calls them out, like, look at them there, the fake news, and everyone sort of boos. And it really creates, you know, what Durkheim called the collective effervescence but there's an there's another thing that he does in terms of connecting with people at an emotional level and that is he explodes a set of what you call feeling rules so just tell me about that yeah um let let me um let me back up before i come to feeling rules i think there are kind of we see in Donald Trump today both a pragmatic uh, strategy to try, as we speak, to overturn uh, the the voters' choice for our next president, um, Joe Biden. He is now uh, trying to invalidate uh, the election and uh, to, uh, so his strategy is saying, okay, the people have voted uh, for Donald Trump, but if they did, in the states they voted for me, no, that was, those were honest uh, votes. In the states where they voted uh, for my opponent, no, that those are fake votes uh, and uh, a nefarious plot. So if it's for me, it's honest. If, if it's uh, not for me, uh, it's dishonest. And if it's dishonest, his next strategy is to say, I'm going to uh, disregard the voters and go after the electoral college representatives and see if I can cause trouble there with my lawsuits and get them uh, to um, misrepresent the voters and vote for me. Instead, this is a frightening strategy, I think, in that it's challenging the electoral process, which uh, uh, all the the lawsuits are being turned away because, in fact, uh, uh, there there is no uh, voter fraud uh, that's been turned up so far. Anyway, that's a strategy, very frightening to me. He will not uh, concede, as every other American president from American history has. Um, and um, Nixon and 60 and uh, Republicans and Democrats, that's how we do it. That's the American way. So that's his strategy at the moment. Um, but he has um, 
that's this practical strategy, but I think there's also an emotional, I don't know if I would call it strategy, but appeal to the people that I've been mm. coming to know, both in the South and now in Appalachia. Um, he has two appeals. On the one hand, um, he's aspirational. He's a billionaire. Wouldn't we, for all these people stuck in line, wouldn't it be great to move ahead in line, get to the top of the mountain? And in addition, uh, here's the paradox. He presents himself as suffering, presents himself as struggling against against the Democratic Party, against the uh, mainstream media, uh, against foreign countries, against the deep state, against, you know, potential conspiracies. So he's struggling. He's suffering. And he's saying to people, oh, I'm suffering for you. And you can't you relate to me? I'm suffering. So yes, I'm privileged. Yes, I'm successful. But oh, how I'm... I'm uh, uh, facing adversity, and people relate to him both ways. Oh, as a success story, and as long-suffering person. And actually, the more the left kind of pokes at Donald Trump, the more his base. So oh, there they go again, you know, um, making it hard for our defender, our guy. Um, hmm. Yeah, the so the feeling rules that I think he's uh, promoting are uh, uh, identify with me um, and come into the dark hole in which I live, in which uh, there are many enemies, and you're either friend or enemy. Uh, I mean, he is deeply polarizing figure. He's asking you to, if if you don't vote for him, you are his enemy. And if you work for him, he'll fire you. Uh, if you don't obey his will, and he's, uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, he 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 criticized Democratic states and not Republican states. You know, when California had. Uh, a big fire, you know, oh, well, that's just a democratic state, so I'm not sure they really deserve uh, federal aid. I mean, he's politicizing so many things. Um, So the feeling rule is uh, uh, you do that too, you know, Uh, deepen the divide. Um, It's uh, we're we're in war, so you have to choose. So I I think this is... uh, Ah, very (laughs) unfortunate, and uh, we need to do everything at every level of government, you know, national, state, community level. I'd love to see high school exchange programs. We need to undo that and heal this nation. De-Trumpet. Trumpet, yeah, that would be welcome relief. There is one remaining puzzle, Ali, which is if most of the liberal elite 
failed to understand the emotional needs of the white working class. And, you know, indeed it took you five years and 4,690 pages of transcripts to gain a good understanding of the deep story on the right. Then how did a real estate magnate from New York City, who I'm told doesn't even read, <laughs> grok the deep story so easily? Uh, I think he relates to it because... Uh, I think he had a very harsh father. This is speculation on my part. I think he right. probably wasn't a good student. You know, I don't think the written word, I mean, if his dyslexia or something was uh, trouble, he was sent off to boarding school young. Um, so I, I think he has struggled with shame and with discouragement and uh, come out the the fighter and people can relate to that so that's uh, um, I think he comes by it honestly he he knows about struggle uh, the problem is and it's good that he knows about struggle we should all know about struggle and we all have had our struggles I think many of us um, and it's good that it's helped him relate to people who've had different kinds of struggles uh, than he. Um, but his solutions, both emotional and structural, are a, more of a problem than an answer. Trump won about 10.1 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. What does that tell you about the country today? It means that uh, there was mobilization of votes on both sides because uh, the whole country is now um, become hypervigilant uh, about our political fate. Uh, and uh, it's hard to know what period of history to compare it to. Uh, I would say the 1920s, uh, 19 to 21 under Woodrow Wilson, there was this kind of ferment and anti-immigrant uh, feeling. Um, and uh, uh, then it was, uh, uh, you know, against, it was also, uh, race riots, but riots against immigrants. And um, so uh, I think it's not the first time that we've been in this much trouble. I would think of the 1960s as a time when there was also a lot of turmoil. Uh, but everyone, uh, I think, wanted to get to the polls to say uh, what they thought the answer to the turmoil is. So his a base uh, was mobilized, but so too was uh, was the liberal uh, progressive base. There were just more people voting. Ali, you talk about scaling empathy walls, and indeed, that's what you did in the in that five year period in which you spent time in the Deep South. How can we be more empathetic? And do we need a new word in the English language which captures this idea of spending time in another person's shoes? I like empathy well uh, for a word. Uh, but you know, 
And we have to think of it both structurally and personally. Uh, and that's how C. Wright Miltz might look at it. Structurally, it used to be that the labor movement was the middleman between the Democratic Party and the working class. But there almost is no more labor movement that with offshoring uh, in the uh, 70s, uh, companies undercut uh, the labor movement and it hasn't uh, recovered from that. Uh, and we used to have a, a compulsory draft which put people from different regions and different social classes together to mix and match. And we don't have that either. So we need another structural mixer <laughs> matcher uh, and uh, we need it fast. Um, and so uh, that structurally, uh, I was just talking to uh, a uh, member of a, a, a farming group that wants to get um, or uh, good healthy food to food deserts in the city. And this can be a way of getting uh, rural people who generally feel looked down on by city people, you know, that could be a way of getting people together. And uh, there are a lot of, um, uh, of other ways too. Actually, on the last time last year that I went down uh, to Louisiana, there was a young man uh, from Yale who wanted to meet the people that I'd come to know and who later has put together something called the American Exchange Project. It now has 30 different high schools, some in the north, some in the south, some on coasts, some inland. And they meet on Google Chat. They form different groups and they uh, get uh, make friends and they arrange three-week uh, visits to each other in different regions. And in fact, there's a group now after Lake Charles, Louisiana, was hit by three tropical storms after another, a group of students in the north wanted to go down uh, and help rebuild the town. That's the kind of thing we need to scale up onto a national level. Um, need to do that with universities and other places of work and churches as well. Ali Hochschild, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Very nice to talk to you, Joe. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For links and notes to everything we discussed, you will find those on my website, josephnoelwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H. N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. If you are enjoying the show, I would love a rating and a review. It does help us reach the hard-to-reach guests. So please rate and review the Jolly Swagman podcast. That would mean a lot. The Jolly Swagman podcast is engineered by Lawrence Moorfield. Our very thirsty and parched video editor is Alf Eddy. I'm your host, Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.